You're listening to a message from Third Church in Richmond, Virginia, where we believe we are called together for the renewal of all things through Jesus Christ. To learn more about Third or how you can get involved with our community, please check out our website, thirdrva.org. That's T-H-I-R-D-R-V-A dot org. Thanks for listening. Let's pray together. Father, Son, and Spirit, we do thank you that you revealed your goodness and love and grace to us and through Jesus. And we thank you that your scriptures bear witness to him. So we pray now, Holy Spirit, the one who illuminated uh, these words to be written, would you now illumine them to be read and preached, that we might see and know Jesus and follow him. We pray this in his name. Amen. So if you seated. Well, welcome again. We've been in a sermon series um, since Easter on John 14 through 17 called Always With You. Um, this is about the great promise of Jesus that he's risen from the dead to always be with us through the person of the Spirit. Um, and I'm excited to welcome our guest uh, preacher today, Nathan Walton. Nathan is a dear friend of mine, and he's the pastor, one of the pastors of East End Fellowship. You might not know this, but um, Third Church is in a partnership with two other congregations called a Mission Affinity Group. Um, that's the Christian Arabic Church, um, which primarily ministers to the immigrant community, and then East End Fellowship, which primarily ministers to the urban community down in the East End of Richmond. Um, and so our three churches are in a partnership together. The pastors meet. Elders meet, we seek to hold each other accountable to our ministry goals and really encourage each other in the bigger mission of God in our city. Um, So we're super grateful for that partnership. And um, so Nathan, we love having Nathan here to preach. Um, Nathan is a UVA grad, both um, undergrad and a PhD from the religious studies department there, is that right? Um, And he is an MDiv from Duke University. And previous to being here, he lived in Charlottesville helping run a community development ministry there called Abundant Life. Um, Nathan is married to Diamond, and they have two little girls, Esperanza and Vera May. So um, we're super grateful to have you here, Nathan. I'm going to read our scripture reading today from John chapter 16. So please um, listen or open your Bibles, and let's hear God's word. Jesus says this, but now I am going to him who sent me. None of you asks me, where are you going? Rather, you are filled with grief because I have said these things. But very truly, I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment, about sin because people do not believe in me, about righteousness because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer, and about judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me, because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. Jesus went on to say, in a little while, you will see me no more. And then after a little while, you will see me. I have told you these things so that in me, you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. People of God, this is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Good to be with you all again. As we get started, please join me in prayer. Gracious God, thank you so much for your goodness toward us. 
I thank you for the opportunity for us to gather once again to worship you, to glorify you, to fellowship with one another, and to receive a word from you. God, we pray that you would meet us in these moments through the power of your spirit, and pray that you would equip us for the work ahead. In Christ's name we pray, amen. All right, well, so we're knee-deep in this current sermon series focusing on chapters 14 through 17 of the Gospel of John. And I think this is a fascinating section of Scripture because it gives us a glimpse into how Jesus approached his final days with his disciples. And at this point in the Gospel story, Jesus has tried to explain to them that his time is coming to a close. Unsurprisingly, this will be a theme throughout the Gospels. They don't fully get what's happening, but they did know enough to be grieved about his departure. And at the same time, Jesus was letting them know that something new was on the horizon for them. Someone else was coming. His departure would ultimately be for their own good. As I reflected on this passage this week, I couldn't help but think about Tim Keller, the internationally known New York pastor who passed away this week after a three-year battle with pancreatic cancer. I'm sure many of you here have been touched by his ministry for years. And in his last days with his family, one of the things he said to his son, Michael, was that there was no downside to him transitioning. I can only imagine what it was like to hear that. But part of what Pastor Keller was modeling was an eternal perspective on what was happening, an echo of the Apostle Paul's claim in his letter to the Philippians that to live is Christ and to die is gain. Keller understood that his leaving was not the last word on what God was going to do. I think this eternal perspective is part of what Jesus is trying to get his disciples to see. He is leaving, but in the grand scheme of things, this is for their good. It's for our good. The Spirit is coming. The Spirit's on the way. The very Spirit who brooded over the waters of creation, the same Spirit who would then raise Jesus from the dead, this same Spirit would come to dwell in and among his followers. They would not be left alone. This is good news. Disciples hear that the Spirit is on the way. Earlier in John chapter 14, which you all explored uh, earlier in this series, Jesus said things like, I will ask the Father. He will give you another advocate to help you, to be with you forever. He says things like, the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, who the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and remind you of everything that I've said to you. There's lots of positive imagery about the Spirit's coming and his role. But here in chapter 16, I think Jesus adds an interesting new layer to the Spirit and how we understand the Spirit. Jesus shifts to say that a key part of the Spirit's role is to prove that the world is wrong. This is fascinating to me. The Spirit will prove that the world is wrong. He claims the Spirit will expose how the world is wrong about sin, how the world is wrong about righteousness, how the world is wrong about judgment. But what does all that mean? What does all this mean? It appears that the Spirit will expose the sin of refusing to acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah, as the Son of God. The Spirit will vindicate Jesus' righteousness by raising him from the dead so that he can ascend back to the Father. And the Spirit will judge the spiritual evil in this world that has stood against the kingdom of God. In other words, there's something of a tension between who Jesus really is and the way that the world has misunderstood and even mistreated him. So the Spirit comes in part to correct this, to vindicate Jesus, to show who he really is. It becomes clear that a true assessment of Jesus' identity is really important to the Spirit's role. So much of what the Spirit reveals boils down to this question of, if the world really believes that Jesus is who he says he is, 
if we believe Jesus is who he really says he is. What's ironic to me is that the spirit is simultaneously presented as this comforter, a, a positive, a really warm image. And at the same time, the spirit is this agent of judgment. That can be a bit jarring. What does it mean to hold these two things together? What does it mean that the spirit is this comforter who convicts, this counselor who also corrects? I think that at first glance, this can seem a bit foreign to us. After all, just earlier in John chapter 3, Jesus is clear that God so loved the world, right, that he gave his son. God loves the world, but here it's saying that the spirit will hold accountable the very things that Jesus died for and loved. What does all this mean? Throughout John's gospel, there is this symmetry and this echo between what the Spirit and Jesus do and say, and he does the same thing with the Father and the Son, right? They're constantly echoing one another. But this image of judgment doesn't neatly connect with the cultural imagery in our minds of Jesus with this gentle smile, this long flowing hair, this lamb draped across his shoulders, right? Doesn't feel, doesn't feel like that. How is this image of the Spirit coming to prove the world wrong and judge a reflection of Jesus? Perhaps you're like me and you feel a bit of distance there. I wonder if maybe the reason why this can feel so foreign to us is because we often find a downsized and domesticated God a bit more appealing, a God who is easier for our fingers to handle, a God who loves more than he convicts, a God who has our comfort as his highest priority. A God who forgives but doesn't want us to feel too bad, right? After all, the Holy Spirit's referred to, even in our text, as a comforter in some translations. But how will we respond when the Holy Spirit reveals a Jesus who can both pronounce forgiveness and turn over tables in holy anger, earlier in John 2? A Jesus who, at one point, critiques the Pharisees, calling them whitewashed tombs that look beautiful but are full of death. And another point can tell the adulterous woman that her sins have been washed away. Time and time again, this Jesus blows up the conceptual box that we are often tempted to place him in. What if what God really wants to do is to free us from false or incomplete ideas about who he is so that we can be free to worship the true God, the true Jesus who calls us to worship in spirit and in truth earlier in John chapter 4? We probably all experience Situations in our lives in which, you know, we knew folks who were nice and gentle and cheerful, but then all of a sudden we realized that there was another side to them. And then after seeing them for who they really were, this allowed us to more fully understand and even appreciate them and appreciate the truth about them. I remember back when I was in high school, I had just got my license, and my mother and, all, uh, my mother and I, we were always very close. Um, She's a great lady, awesome, very kind, very peaceful, and she was excited and super supportive of me as I was taking that step into, you know, moving towards becoming a responsible adult. And I remember that once I got my license, we spoke about the importance of me letting her know whenever I was, you know, going to be out of the house and, you know, I was supposed to buy by the rules and let her know if I was going to be late and all those things. But I knew my mom was a super nice lady, so of course she wouldn't be that strict, right? After all, she can trust me. So... You know, I probably only had my license for like a week or two, and uh, my mom gave me permission to go run a few errands. So I'm excited. I get to get out of the house, be an adult. And while I was out, I realized that a buddy of mine um, who, had a, who knew, knew one of the staff at the school, he had gotten keys to the gym. And so he proposed that we go shoot some hoops. 
So my thought was, number one, I love playing basketball. Love it. And as an aspiring uh, future NBA prospect, number two, how else, how else am I going to take my game to the next level without doing this? So it's a no-brainer. No-brainer. Got to go. So I showed up at the gym, played ball for several hours, honed my skills, and I didn't give any thought to letting my mom know where I was at, what I was doing. Who knows? After I was drafted by the NBA, I could tell about the story then, right? As I'm buying her a new house, all these things. Now, unbeknownst to me, she was um, not happy with this, and she was worried, and she was calling around town to try to figure out where I was at. But then once I spent, you know, a number of hours uh, shooting hoops and preparing for the NBA, uh, I decided I was ready to go home. So I remember stepping into the, into the house to see a woman who looked very different than the woman I'd left many hours prior to that. She's quite upset. Now, fortunately, she wasn't the type of mom who would, like, yell or scream or, you know, all that stuff. She didn't do that, but she didn't have to. I just saw the look on her face, right? And that stern look told me that things were not well in the home. And so she didn't say anything. The first thing she did was just hold out her hand, which meant give me the keys. So I gave her the keys, and then she asked me where I'd been, uh, and then let me know that she was upset that I hadn't touched base with her beforehand. And then she issued my punishment. Anyone who was not here at 845 want to guess what my punishment was? What was that? Okay, a few different things, very close. Um, so it's a couple things. One, she took the keys for a month. And then the second thing she did is she told me to go find a Bible and find the Ten Commandments. <laughs> Exodus 20, if you're wondering. Well, one version of it in the Bible, there's two. Then she said that during this month of not driving, I would need to find some loose leaf paper and handwrite the entire chapter 50 times. <laughs> and then at the end of the month, I would have to recite the entire chapter back to her in order to get my keys. Mind you, this chapter includes much more than the Ten Commandments. So I mentioned the story for two reasons. One, it's to illustrate that uh, my mom was very creative with discipline. <laughs> there are other stories I could share about that creativity, but I'll save those for another sermon on the laying on of holy hands. But the second reason I share it is because it reminded me of this other side of my mom. Sure, she was joyful and peaceful, and she would, you know, do whatever she could to do things for her children, be sacrificial, generous. She'd do anything to help us to thrive. But she also had this other side to her. She loved and respected others, but she also demanded respect. And in hindsight, I can now appreciate the stronger side of her, especially now that I'm a parent. And although the side of her caught me off guard in the moment, it gave me a fuller glimpse of who she was. It helped me to know the fuller truth about my mom. Sometimes we can forget that love and justice, grace and truth, forgiveness and accountability are often two sides of the same coin. And then we can make the mistake of carrying assumptions about them being separate into our relationships with God. Part of what today's verses do is they invite us to see the fullness of who the Spirit is, so that we can see the fuller truth of who Jesus is. What Jesus had experienced on earth was people who either misunderstood the truth of who he was, or they just flat out rejected it. They didn't want it. Some expected him to be this conquering king who would liberate Israel, free them from Roman oppression. And for them, the fullness of who Jesus was, this idea of him being a suffering servant, just didn't make any sense. For the religious elite, they viewed him as a threat to both God and their own um, social status. For Pilate and Roman authorities, 
They heard of Jesus talking about this kingdom, but they misunderstood what Jesus was doing. They misunderstood that Jesus actually wanted to free both the oppressed and oppressors because they were all in bondage in different ways. Jesus' contemporaries often misunderstood the truth about who he was and why he came. But the Spirit comes to help us to see Jesus clearly, to see the full truth. Even when Jesus has this famous interaction with uh, this conversation with Peter, and he asks him, you know, Peter, who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? He says, you know, you're the son of God. And Jesus says, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, right? In other words, it's only through a revelation from God that we can truly get it. It takes a spirit. So here in chapter 16 of John, Jesus is saying that that is the work of the spirit, to reveal the truth about who he is. What's interesting about the spirit's role is that he both confirms the truth of who Jesus is and he reveals the truth of what Jesus says. Jesus says in verse 13 that the spirit of truth comes. And when he comes, he will guide us into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell us what is yet to come. Then Jesus goes on to say that even as the spirit receives from Jesus, Jesus will only convey what he receives from the Father. What I think is striking about this is that there is much more of an emphasis on how the truth is conveyed from the Father to the Son to the Spirit then there are actual details about the specific truths that the Spirit will show us. In other words, why isn't Jesus more specific about what those truths are? With all this discussion about the Spirit guiding us into all truth, you would think that Jesus might give us a little more detail. Like, what does that mean? What does all that mean? But he doesn't. And I wonder if maybe that's part of the point. Maybe part of what Jesus is doing is he's saying that the important thing is actually the relationships between the Father and the Son, between the Son and the Spirit, between the Spirit and the church. Because out of that pattern of being in relationship, we become positioned to hear the truth. And at that point, we will receive all that we need. We will be able to hear the truth in the context of that relationship. Earlier in John chapter 10, Jesus says that his sheep know his voice. Sheep know the voice of their shepherd because they are in close relationship with their shepherd. They've been around their shepherd. They're familiar with his voice. They spend time with him. And in our own lives, being able to hear the truth of the Spirit requires us taking a moment to stop, to listen to God, taking time to invest in our relationships with God, taking time to acknowledge that God longs to connect with us as his children, longs to communicate with us, taking time to resist the constant distractions all around us that clamor for our attention so that we, like Mary, can sit at the feet of Jesus to hear him. And as we spend time with the Lord, whether in personal prayer, whether in scriptural reflection, whether in corporate worship like this, or even out engaging in God's mission in our city, we position ourselves to hear the truth of the Spirit's direction in our lives. As the people of God, the truth that the Spirit reveals helps us to know who Jesus is, And it also helps us to know how to follow the Spirit. What's beautiful about this process is that the Spirit's truth is not just for us. Part of the Spirit's mission is to reveal the truth of who Jesus is. So if the church is called to continue this mission, even today, we are tasked with helping the world to understand who this Jesus is too. So what Jesus do people see when they look at a church? They look at our church, we look at churches at large. What Jesus do they see being lived out? Do they see the real Jesus or a distortion? 
sometimes when people look at the church, the Jesus they see is a prosperity Jesus, right? A lot of my dissertation research was on this phenomenon, a Jesus whose top priority is to make sure that we are living a materially lavish lifestyle. Sometimes the Jesus that they see when they look at the church is an Americanized Jesus, a Jesus who conflates nationalism with the kingdom of God, or a Jesus who places partisan politics above the church's actual purpose. At other times, they see what we might call an ethnocentric Jesus, a Jesus who seems to privilege one ethnic group over another group. They may even see a hyper-masculinized Jesus, a Jesus who wants us to resist emotional availability, or a macho messiah who dissuades us and discourages us from being vulnerable or admitting our weaknesses or our struggles. Churches may not explicitly claim that these are the Jesus that they worship or we worship, but when we take inventory of our church structures, our church practices, um, our language, our culture, each of these things reveals something about who we believe Jesus to be and what we think Jesus encourages. Which Jesus do people see when they look at us? Is it the Jesus of the Bible or is it a poor substitute? As we seek to affirm and embody the truth that the Holy Spirit has revealed about the true Jesus, we have a responsibility, an opportunity, a privilege to point people towards the Jesus of John 16. The Jesus who really is the Son of God, who stands against the evil of this world, but loves that world enough to die so that it might be healed. That's who Jesus is. And the opportunity for us is to be a people who not only bear the truth by being temples of the truth, of the Holy Spirit, but people who live as truth bearers in a broken world. In our day-to-day lives, we are invited to proclaim the truth of who Jesus is in word and in deed, announcing to the world that Jesus has come, he's died, he's risen, that we might be forgiven of our sins, freed from spiritual bondage, and invited into a spiritual and tangible kingdom in which lives, communities, and even systems are transformed. We're invited to echo the truth of Jesus and his kingdom that we receive from the Holy Spirit, even as the Spirit reveals what he hears from the Father and from the Son. We are called to bear witness to the truth. At the launch of Jesus' ministry, Jesus says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord. Becoming truth bearers means that we are called to join in that mission. We follow the Spirit's lead in this, as the Spirit follows the Son, and the Son follows the Father. The Spirit is our paraclete, or as Pastor Corey explained a few weeks ago, someone who comes alongside of us, or as your Bible version might say, our advocate, our counselor, our comforter, our helper. This means that following in step with the Spirit To join Jesus' mission requires that we advocate for the marginalized, that we comfort the brokenhearted, that we counsel the discouraged, and that we help the helpless. Becoming the type of community for whom it's second nature to come alongside those who are longing for spiritual, physical, and economic deliverance, both within the church and even beyond the church. Resisting the temptation that's so common to be focused on our own desires and our own needs, so much so that we forget that God calls us to hear the truth so that we might be truth bearers among those who need a fresh word of hope from the Lord. This is possible because through God's grace and mercy, the Spirit is able to work in us, 
work through us, even work in spite of us. The Spirit revealed the truth about who Jesus was in the first century, and he continues to want to reveal that truth today, even through us. The implication is that we can now become those who bear the truth as temples of the Holy Spirit and those who bear the truth in a broken world. One question we can be bringing to God is, who do we need to speak truth to in our own lives? What opportunities in the everyday do we have when we interact with people? What opportunities do we have to come share who the real Jesus is with them? Where do we need God's vision to see those opportunities, to take note of them? And where do we need God's courage to actually embrace those chances? Our truth-bearing can be the key to someone else's hope and healing. And if we're honest, the reason we're here is because we were recipients of that truth at one point. God used someone to share the good news with us. So now we are bearers of that truth in our own lives. Now, I'm a firm believer that it is very hard to to give what you've not first received. So sometimes the person who needs a fresh word from the Lord is us. Sometimes it's hard for us to recognize when God is speaking because our focus is simply on other things, though. Our lives can get so congested, so busy, that we forget to stop and ask the fundamental question, what is God saying to me in this time, in this moment, in this day? What is God saying right now? Sometimes in our own busyness, we can be distracted from how God might be speaking to us or even at work around us. Hearing God is often easier if we're intentionally spending time with the Lord and taking time to stop and listen for the Spirit's voice, the Spirit's direction. And what we'll find as we practice this discipline more is that not only will our sensitivity to the Spirit's voice strengthen, but we will become more capable of helping other people hear and respond to God in their own lives too. Maybe ask God for those divine interruptions, those moments when God's truth cuts through the chaos of our lives and through the white noise of everyday distractions so that we can hear a fresh word from the Lord for this moment. And may God grant us courage to share that truth with conviction and clarity to a broken world, even when that truth convicts even us. A question this leaves us with is, what word from the Spirit do we need to hear today? What truth do our, longs, our hearts long to feel today? As we position ourselves to hear, I want to invite you to bow your head and close your eyes. For some of us, like the disciples, the first word that we need to hear is, I am still with you. For others of us, perhaps it's, I have not forgotten you. For some of us, it's I have heard your cries. For others of us, it's I have forgiven you. Let's take a moment in silence. And I want to invite the Spirit to reveal his truth to you to meet you right where you are. So please join me in being silent before the Lord for a moment. Let us pray. Gracious God, thank you for being a God who meets us, for being a God who pursues us, for being a God who loves us, and for being a God willing to speak truth to us. God, we pray that as you speak, God, you would give us ears to hear you. We pray that, God, you would help to guard us from the distractions and the chaos and all the things that would keep our eyes from being focused on you, that would dull our sensitivities to what your spirit is doing and saying around us and even in us. 
pray, God, you open us up to you, that we might actually be your temple, that, God, you might actually be in us, that you might be lived out through us. So, God, we pray that, God, you would equip us for your mission, that you would equip us with the courage we need to be truth bearers out in the world, to be truth bearers in our workplace, to be truth bearers in our schools, to be truth bearers in the grocery store, wherever we go, God. I pray to God you give us your eyes to see ways that we can be tangibly joining in your mission and your work because we know that our world is longing to hear a word of hope, a word of truth, and a word of grace and mercy. So God, we pray that you would use us and we pray that in that, God, we would be able to rely on you, that we won't try to operate out of our own strength because we know that it's only through your spirit that any of this is possible. So spirit, we invite you to come to dwell in us and among us and to move through us, that others might come, taste and see that this God is very good. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, amen.